We talked about last time about the Jewish obsession with Torah study. Torah study is so central to our lives. It's what we teach our children. It's what our communities are based upon. It's what we hope our children aspire to become Torah scholars. That is true today, and that has been true throughout Jewish history. Ever since Sinai, there's been an obsession that Jewish people have had with Torah study. This, of course, is a mitzvah. This is a very important mitzvah. Our sages tell us that this mitzvah is equivalent to all the other 612 mitzvahs combined. But the question I want to pursue now is, why? Why is it so important? Why is it so central? Why are we so obsessed with Torah study? I want to tell you that five years ago, a little more than five years ago, this is a long time ago. This is even before the Torch Center was built. We were still working out of an office building. I did 11 lectures and 11 podcast episodes on this question. Why do we study Torah? Why are we so obsessed with it? And I came up with around 25 different reasons to that. And recently, I have been re-listening to those old episodes and I really got a kick out of it. You know, the, the audio is kind of atrocious. And I didn't edit out any questions from participants. So it's kind of like a group discussion that meanders and finds all these side tangents and segues. And we start talking about all kinds of other issues, but it was still fun to listen to it. I always say that, uh, you know, the pandemic caused a lot of problems. But one thing that it did help is that it helped podcast audio quality for me. Because everyone's on Zoom and everyone's on mute and there's fewer questions and no one's coughing. I don't have to edit that out. But these podcasts, these 11 podcast episodes from five or six years ago were really interesting for me to listen to. And I'm not going to go through all 25 reasons. We're not going to give it the same extensive treatment. But these are still available on some of the uh, the old podcasts that you can find. They're actually quite – I was actually very impressed with how I titled them. They were cleverly titled. Like, for example, Part 8 was titled Conquering the Endgame, How Torah Study Engenders Character Change and Transformation. Or Part 9, Humanity's Soul Hope, How Torah Guides the World to Its Destiny and Saves It from Destruction. Very cleverly titled and actually listened to them, some of them, not all of them. But uh, it was really enjoyable. So we went through 25 reasons in the past, and we really tried to unbundle the subject into the different reasons. Sometimes the reasons are similar, they're adjacent, but they really try to separate out all the different reasons why we study Torah. Today we're not going to give it that same extensive treatment. We'll do this discussion and maybe one or two more, but I definitely want to dip our toe into this subject. So Torah study is so central to Jewish life, and the question is why? And also I want to to frame it as the question of what do we gain? We are trained. I've been trained since a little kid. When I went to school, there was Judaics, essentially, Torah most of the day, and we also had secular studies as, as they're called. We did math and science and English and history, etc. But the majority of the day was scheduled around Torah study, around Chumash, Scripture, and Mishnah, and eventually like fifth or sixth grade Talmud. And then you get to Yeshiva, and it's really all Talmud all day. 
So I've been reared on Torah study. And it's not just me. That's the way Jewish education has been structured really for thousands of years. So this is really the basis of Jewish life. And the question is why? And what are the benefits that we accrue when we study Torah? So I want to start with the simple ideas and kind of use them to develop a certain understanding of what Torah is and how it is helpful to us, how it is beneficial to us, how it can change our life in a very positive way. So why do we study Torah? So I think the simplest answer is, well, it's a mitzvah. And as Jews, we've accepted upon ourselves the mandate of God to fulfill his mitzvahs. And there's mitzvahs that involve wearing tefillin, and there's a mitzvah to sit on the sukkah during Sukkot, and on Pesach we matzah, and one of the mitzvahs is to study Torah. And like we mentioned earlier, this is not just any mitzvah, this is a really important mitzvah. It's equal to all the other mitzvahs combined. Our sages tell us that when we die, we are ushered before a heavenly court. And we get a post-mortem, if you will, inspection, interrogation in front of the court. We face divine judgment. And there's two teachings of the Talmud about this. In one, it talks about the six questions that a person is asked after they pass. Six questions. This is in the Talmud, the book of Shabbos, page 31a. Six questions. Did you do business with integrity? Did you procreate, etc.? And then it asks, Kavata item la Torah. Did you set aside, did you designate time to, t- to study Torah? That's in the Talmud in Shabbos 31. In Sanhedrin 7a, it tells us further. The beginning of someone's judgment, the first question that we are posed is regarding Torah study. So it's almost like when you when you investigate someone, you always deal with the most important matters first. And the most important matter, the most important determinant as to whether a person accomplished their mission in, the, in, in life here is that they designate time to study Torah. So it's a mitzvah, and it's a really important mitzvah. But let's dig into this a little bit further. A mitzvah, of course, has to be sourced in Scripture. There are 613 mitzvahs, And each one of them has a verse in scripture that commands us to obey this mitzvah. What's the source? What is the verse in the Torah that commands us to study Torah? So this is where it gets a little interesting. Because the truth is, it's a little bit mysterious. We don't really find many verses that direct us to study Torah. What we do have is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. And this is in the Shema. Shema Yisrael. Hashem al-Ken Hashem Echad. So we have the mitzvah to Shema, to, to know, to acknowledge the dominion of God. And then we're told to love God with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our resources. And finally, we have two verses. And it should be, these instructions should be upon our heart. 
We should teach them to our children. We should speak in them in words of Torah. When we go to sleep, when we wake up, when we travel on the way, when we sit in our home, we should study words of Torah. So first of all, this is interesting for a few reasons. Number one, it frames the mitzvah of Torah study not as something that we study, but as something that we teach. How does it start? Vishinantem levanecha. You should teach it to your children. Typically, Torah study is something we study ourselves, or maybe we study with a partner. But most mitzvahs in the Torah are obligations on us. Here, the obligation is framed as something we're supposed to teach our children. Moreover, at first glance, it's not even clear that it's talking about words of Torah. Because we have the Shema and the paragraph of the Shema, and we know there's a mitzvah to recite the Shema. So you could actually read this verse as a commandment to recite the Shema. And in fact, there is a mitzvah to recite the Shema twice a day, and that is sourced from the same verse. It's lumped together, the mitzvah of reciting the Shema, together with the mitzvah of studying Torah. If I told you, hey, we have this mitzvah, such an important mitzvah, it's equal to all the mitzvahs combined, it's the first question you get asked after you die. Wouldn't you imagine that it wouldn't be hinted to in the Torah? It would be a direct verse. Maybe you'd have a whole chapter about it, the importance of Torah study, and maybe the rigorous schedule we should have of Torah study. You would imagine that the commandment to do this most important mitzvah would be featured much more prominently in Scripture. And all we have really is like a hint to it, which is almost ambiguous. Teach your children these words, this kind of this amorphous instruction. And isn't that interesting? Doesn't that raise an eyebrow? Now, to compound the question, once you finish the Torah, we have five books of the Torah, and you finish Deuteronomy, and then we have, of course, the 19 other books of the Jewish canon, of the Tanakh. And the first book after Deuteronomy, after the Torah, after the five books of Moses, what's the first book? We have Joshua. And the very opening statement of the book of Joshua, the Almighty tells Joshua, and it's enshrined in Scripture, be strong, Observe the Torah that I instructed to Moshe, my servant. Don't depart from it, not right, not left. And then it tells us like this. Let the words of this book not depart your mouth forever. And you should study a day and night. So isn't it really interesting that we go through the entire Torah and there really isn't much of a reference to studying Torah, this very important mitzvah that's so central to Jewish life, and you open up the next book, and in the eighth verse it says you should study Torah day and night, all the time you should be studying Torah, and you should never depart from it. Wouldn't that be more appropriately found inside the text of the Torah itself, inside the text of the five books? And we wait almost until Joshua, and right at the beginning of Joshua, there is a commandment to study Torah with such intensity, all day, all night, never depart from it, total commitment to Torah study, and we would imagine that that should be more appropriately placed in the text of the Torah itself. So it hints at it, but it doesn't say it boldly and directly until the opening paragraph 
of the next book of Scripture, the book of Joshua. So I want to suggest an approach that will kind of ease us into the question at hand of why we study Torah, but also to explain the unusual treatment, shall we say, that the Torah gives to the study of the Torah and that mitzvah. So here's the very important point I want to convey. You go to school, and maybe if you are fortunate enough to go to yeshiva, you may have dual tracks. You have, you know, the history and science and biology and chemistry and physics and mathematics and English. Oh, and they look at the schedule and you see, oh, there's Talmud and there's, there's Parsha and there's Mishnah and there's Halacha. You may look at a daily schedule or curriculum and say, wow, we have lots of interesting subjects to study over the course of the year. But it would be a grave mistake to demote Torah to being that of a discipline like the other disciplines. When we talk about Torah, or certainly the the Jewish perspective of what Torah is, it's not something we study. It's not a subject like any other. It's a relationship. It's something very deep and intimate. Let me explain what I mean. In several places, the Torah is actually compared to a spouse. For example, the Talmud says that if someone studies Torah occasionally, it's the equivalent of them committing adultery. How so? So Rashi explains, if you only study Torah occasionally, some days yes, some days no, maybe take a week off, go on vacation. It's not consistent. It's the equivalent of a man who has no wife, and sometimes he consorts with this woman, and sometimes with that woman. He sleeps around, if you will. There's no consistency. The idea here is that the relationship that we have with Torah is that of almost like a a bind between husband and wife. And that kind of relationship demands consistency. And if someone were told, the Talmud, again, this is in the Talmud in Sanhedrin 99b, if someone does it occasionally, they don't have that commitment, well, that's the equivalent of them essentially going to prostitutes. Moreover, another example, the Talmud tells us, also in the book of Sanhedrin, page 59a, it's talking about the prohibition against Gentiles studying Torah, that it's not relevant to them. Says the Talmud, it's prohibited because it's the equivalent of them consorting with another man's wife. We think of Torah, of Torah study, as something that we study. But our sages tell us that it is a relationship, and the relationship that we have with Torah is similar to the relationship that a man has with a woman, a husband and wife. I think this changes the perspective of what Torah is. It's like a spouse. And if you want to dig into this idea a little further, you find something fascinating. What is the paradigmatic example of a marriage? What's the first marriage in history? Well, of course, that's Adam and Eve. And if you study that union, you'll find a definition of this kind of union. It starts off 
And Adam is alone. And he's sad. And he's depressed. He is suffering from melancholy. And God says, Lo tov hi adam levado. It's not good for man to be alone. I shall make him a helper to help him. Adam was alone. He didn't have a wife. And it's not good for a man to be alone. A man alone is a terrible thing. He needs a wife. He needs a helper to be able to achieve his mission. And after, indeed, Adam is given Eve, he's very excited. And he says, this time it's bone from my bone. It's flesh from my flesh. And the Torah gives us advice. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and become one flesh. This is the Torah's view of, of marriage. It's not good for man to be alone. He has a wife. And therefore, the way it should be done is man should cleave with his wife, depart his father and mother, abandon his previous way of living, and cleave to his wife and become one flesh. That's how the Torah views marriage. When we're told that the relationship that we have with Torah is akin to that of marriage, it's telling us the same thing. Just as it was not good for Adam to be alone without a wife, it's not good for us to be alone without Torah. Some without Torah, what do they, what do they look like? Humans can be quite barbaric. It's almost like a supercharged animal, potentially. Humans, without being grounded, without morality, without instructions for living, can be quite cruel and evil. So at a very basic level, it's not good for man to be alone. Man needs Torah, man needs instruction, man needs guidance, because that helps man sober up and become a human. And yes, the Torah has lots of restrictions, lots of prohibitions, and lots of guidelines, but that actually grounds us to make sure that we are human and not animals. Moreover, we believe that every person has a unique mission to fulfill in life. I was put here to do something that only I can do. No one else could do what I must do, what I am intended to do, what I was created to do, because if so, there would be no reason for me to exist. Ergo, I need some help some guidance along the way. And when we say that Torah is akin to a spouse, what that means is that the Torah will guide us to help us achieve whatever it is we need to achieve in our life. And the advice of the Torah is applied to Torah as well, to Torah study as well. A man shall abandon his father and mother. You have to abandon the life that you had pre-Torah and cleave to Torah and become one flesh. The idea I'm trying to convey here is as follows. If you study Torah with great intensity and with great diligence and commitment, but if it remains a discipline of study like any other, you are not approaching Torah the way it's intended. Torah is intended for us to harmonize ourselves with, to connect with, to fuse with, 
and to become intimately integrated with Torah, just like it is with a spouse. Become one flesh with your spouse, we're told in the Torah. Become one flesh with Torah study itself. If the Torah remains relegated to your mind, you haven't really unlocked its power. Torah needs to penetrate us and we must unite and fuse with it and become one flesh with Torah. And consequently, you will be able to unlock the power latent within it. So perhaps we can explain that that is the reason why the commandment to study Torah is somewhat obscured in the Torah itself. You have to wait to the book of Joshua until that is told you study Torah day and night, never depart from it. On this level, Torah is like a relationship. And the communion, if you will, with Torah is this very deep and intimate thing. We are told that it's improper for a husband and wife to speak to each other regarding matters of intimacy in a crude or vulgar or crass way. And in fact, the Talmud tells us that this is from the book of Nidarim, page 20b. The Talmud tells us that there are nine kinds of children that are born with spiritual defects because of the way their parents behaved at the time of those children's conception. And one of the children that has, so to speak, spiritual defects as a result of the way their parents behaved during the time of their conception is what's called B'nai Chatsufa, which means when the, when the wife demands in a very direct way, that can result in the child being born with spiritual defects. The appropriate way is to be a little bit more, to hint it and to, to kind of convey the message without, without explicitly soliciting it. So this is an idea that I heard in the past. And it's something which I've been unable to source for like a decade. I'm looking for the source. But I remember hearing that that is the same reason why Torah study in the Torah itself is somewhat obscured. The union between man and Torah is so deep that the Torah has to kind of hint at it. Drop hints there. Oh, teach it to your children. And only after the Torah is finished do we have that direct instruction study Torah day and night. It would be crude, it would be crass, it would be a little bit coarse for the Torah to demand study from us directly and overtly. Use subterfuge and hints. That's the appropriate way for spouses to uh, to communicate to each other about matters of intimacy. And Torah is a subject or is a study, is a pursuit that's akin to that of intimacy, and therefore it too must be solicited in that surreptitious, hinting manner. It's also been suggested that we know the upcoming festival of Shavuos marks the anniversary of the giving of the Torah at Sinai. Shavuos is Zman Matan Torah, it's the time of the giving of the Torah. 
And isn't it interesting that if you look in the actual text of the Torah itself, you won't find any hint that the sixth day of the month of Sivan actually corresponds to the day of the giving of the Torah. So it's almost like this moment is too personal, it's too intimate to actually be spoken about uh, overtly. So what do we have? What emerges? We started off by saying that Torah is a mitzvah, and it is a mitzvah. But it's not like any other mitzvah. It's a relationship. It's something that is very deep and intimate that we must cleave to Torah and become one flesh with Torah. We must fuse with Torah. And the person that enters, so to speak, the world of Torah is not the same person that emerges because now they have integrated and harmonized themselves with Torah. That's what it means to become one with Torah. It's not something to study as a hobby or even as a passion, but something where we walk in as one kind of person and we emerge as a person who has been fused with Torah. There's a concept called Da'as Torah or Da'at Torah, which means Torah knowledge. And what this means is that if you have a real Torah sage, you can ask him any question that relates to any matter and you can essentially get God's answer from it. We don't have prophets anymore because prophecy ended. Well, how can we find out the will of God on any given matter? If we ask a sage that has totally integrated themselves with Torah, in effect, they're not giving us their personal opinion. They're giving us their opinion that's now totally infused with Torah. And Torah, of course, is the will of God. And therefore, it's almost like a proxy to find out the will of God on any given matter. And if you ask a question to a Torah sage, and it could be about anything, and it's almost as if that's the idea, at least. It's as if you're getting the Torah's answer or God's answer on that issue because this person has become one flesh with Torah. They have fused and merged with Torah. And what, what, what results from that is a new kind of person that is not an ordinary earthling. This is a person that represents Torah, that speaks Torah, and thus the word of God essentially emanates from them because they are now someone who has harmonized and fused themselves with Torah. Now, isn't it interesting that our sages tell us that God, of course, created everything. Even the Torah is a creation of God. But our sages tell us that the Torah is the first of God's creations. The first thing that God created was Torah, and only then did he create the world. In fact, he used the Torah, we're told, as a blueprint for mapping out and creating the world. Well, what's the last thing that God created? The very last thing we're told is God created man. We would define the objective of creation as the fusion of the first and the last of God's creations. The first creation is Torah. The last creation is man. 
the fusion of these two who come from the opposite spectrums or the opposite sides of the spectrum of the creation process, the fusion of those two creates the magic that's the fulfillment of the Almighty's desire, so to speak, in creation. I want to take this a step further. We're talking about Torah as a relationship. We're talking about Torah as something that we don't just study. We try to integrate ourselves with and try to change ourselves with and try to harmonize ourselves and become one flesh with Torah. And that's the fulfillment of the Almighty's, so to speak, objective in creation. Let's take this a bit further. The Sefer HaChinuch, which is a medieval book that talks about the mitzvahs of the Torah, delineates the 613 mitzvahs in the order in which they appear in the Torah. In his introduction, it's a very fascinating introduction, deals with a lot of fundamental topics of Jewish philosophy. He asks the following question. Why did God give such a precious and holy Torah to us, to humanity? And he answers, he says, well, the real reason is we don't know. Because God does stuff and doesn't always tell us why he did it. But I'll still tell you the answer nonetheless. And that is that the Almighty created different kinds of creations in the world. There are angels, which he defines as discrete, isolated intellect. It's 100% intellect with no instinct. Completely spiritual and not physical. And the Almighty also created animals, which are the opposite, which are completely physical, complete instinct, and not, there's no intelligence, there's no spiritual. And then the Almighty created one species that is half angel and half animal. It's a fusion. Humans are a fusion. A fusion of angel and beast. We have an angelic half, and we have a, an animalistic half, and those two are bound together by divine decree. And you know what he tells us? It's not possible to figure out how this can actually happen. Animals make sense, complete physicality. Angels also make sense, complete spirituality. Humans, we're an enigma. We're self-contradictory. We're angelic, and we're animalistic. And those two can unite under the canopy of one thing. In fact, you see that there's so much diversity in humans. You have great humans who want to help other people and build hospitals. And you have humans who are serial killers. And they're the same species. That doesn't exist by animals. That doesn't exist by angels. It's only us because we have no peer in the fact that we are a mix where this mix breed, half angel, half animal, That's why there's so much diversity amongst humans. Continues the Sefer HaChinuch. The objective of creation is that this mixed breed humans discover God. Know God, know their creator, and discover him. That will fulfill the intention of creation. But here's the problem. We're a hybrid. We're a mix. We're half angel. We're half animal. 
What would result if we did nothing? If we just let nature run its course, if we did no interventions in our lives, what would emerge? Which side would triumph? Which side would overcome the other? The answer, he tells us, is that the physicality will triumph. The physicality has a leg up on the spirituality. The inherent animal within us is much more dominant than the inherent angel within us. So we're facing headwinds. If the objective of life, of the world, of creation, is that man, this hybrid, discover God by favoring their angelic half, well, you're facing headwinds because by default, you're heading the opposite direction. How is that remedied? For that reason, we are given Torah. We're given Torah so that we can connect and unite with our angelic self and become more and more and more intellectual, which is a proxy here in this context, for spiritual. And we could overcome and subjugate and contain our physicality and become more and more like an angel and thereby connect to God. That's his piece. There are angels and there are animals. And for the context of dynamism and change, they're the same. An animal is physical, was physical, will remain physical forever. There really isn't much room for it to change. It doesn't have conflict. It doesn't have this other competing reality within it. The angel is the same thing even though the angel is so opposite from the animal, but vis-a-vis the ability to change, they're the same. An angel can't become a non-angel. It can't say, I want to I wanna relax and chill out and go chew grass like a cow. It can't do that. It, it doesn't have the ability, the capacity, the force to motivate it to become more physical. It doesn't have that. It doesn't live a conflicted life. And then you have this human the human is is the hybrid. It's got the instinct. It's got the physicality. It's got the animalistic side on one hand. It's got the intelligence, the spirituality, the angelic side on the other hand. And that's all wrapped together as one in a way that defies human understanding of how that can actually be done. And we are going to fall somewhere amongst this spectrum between animal and angel. And that's the great conflict of humanity. And if we do nothing, what's definitely going to happen is we'll become progressively more beastly. That side of the equation is in pole position. And the objective of life is to empower our intellectual side, our spiritual side, our angelic side to give it a fighting chance. And what do we do? The Almighty gives us Torah. It gives us the Almighty's brain, if you will. It gives us pure intelligence. And when we integrate with that, in effect, we are changing our physiology by favoring the angel within us, and we're going to begin pivoting to that side of the spectrum. 
and we harmonize with it, and we fuse with it, and we integrate it into ourselves until, potentially, we can actually become indistinguishable from angels. We have a total angel within us, we have a total beast within us, and we can become indistinguishable to either one of those. And Torah is the tool to push us to become like angels. The Talmud in the book of Shabbos on 88b, going into 89a, tells a great story about Moshe ascending to heaven to go extract the Torah. And it tells us that when he went there, the angels were so surprised to see an earthling walking amongst them. Moshe ascends the mountain, goes up into heaven, whatever that means. He ascends to the upper spheres, and he's there, and there's angels, and he's there with God. And he's here to get the Torah and to pull it down, to bring it down to humanity. And the angels cannot believe the sight of this earthling walking around amongst them. And they tell God, master of the world, what is this Yelud Isha? What is this child born of a woman doing amongst us? He seems grossly out of place. So they might respond to the angels, well, he came to get the Torah. And that just made them even more confused. What? The Torah that preceded the world by 974 generations? You intend to give it to humans? To flesh and blood? How is that even possible? The Holy Torah, this treasure that you've been hiding for 974 generations before the world's created, you're going to give it to humanity, to flesh and blood? It's a good question. So the mighty says, you know what, I'm I'm not going to answer that question. Moshe will answer it. Moshe, hey, you come to get the Torah? Answer the angels. How could humans, such flawed humans, flesh and blood, how could they have the Holy Torah? So Moshe tells God, I'll give him an answer, but I'm worried they're going to kill me before I can say my piece. So Moshe says, don't worry about it. Grab onto my throne. Again, this is something, this is anthropomorphic, right? Obviously, whenever we talk about God and the throne, this is on a spiritual level, right? Grab onto the throne and I'll protect you. So Moshe grabs onto God's throne and begins to respond to the angels. And he asks God, well, the Torah that you are giving me, what does it say in it? Give me some excerpts. Give me a blurb of Torah. So the man responds, well, quotes the first of the Ten Commandments, Hashem Lekach, I am Hashem your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. So Moshe turns to the angels, wait, did you guys go to Egypt? Were you enslaved to Pharaoh? The Torah is not for you, it's for us. Okay, well, what else does it say? In the Torah. And he goes to the second of the Ten Commandments. You should not have any other false gods upon my face. Well, he, Moshe turns to the angels. Do you live amongst nations? Do you live amongst idolaters? Is this an issue for you? Is this something you need to be warned about? Okay, well, what else, what else does it say in the Torah? Remember the Shabbos. Do you guys do work that you need to Cease from doing work on Shabbos? Well, what else does it say in it? Don't swear falsely. Do you guys have business relationships that encourage people to swear falsely? On your father and mother. Do you have parents? Do angels have parents? What else does it say? Don't commit adultery. And don't steal. 
and don't murder. Is this an issue for you guys because of Yetzirah? Why should you have Torah? That was Moshe's argument. And uh, they said, you know what? That's a pretty good, pretty good argument. They said, yeah, okay, it makes a lot of sense. Take the Torah. And the Talmud gives us a postscript to this story, an epilogue, that the angels, they started off and they said, Moshe, what's he doing here? What's this son of a man, the son of a woman doing here? Someone born to a woman, what's he doing here? And they were going to kill him, really. And after he conversed with them, and he presented such winning arguments that kind of started liking him. And each one of the angels gave Moshe a gift. And the angel of death, we're told, gave Moshe a gift as to how to stave off the angel of death. What is the kryptonite, if you will, of the angel of death? And therefore, in the book of Numbers, when there's a plague, Moshe tells Aaron Take the kotores, take the incense, and go stand between the living and the dead. You could stop the the angel of death. I know what is his hamstring. I know how to stop him. He told me when I was there. He told me. He told me to stop him. Go do it. And indeed, Aaron grabs the pan and brings the kotores and stands between the living and the dead. And the angel of death is halted. This is an interesting story. But I want to pull away two points from it. Number one, we're told the reason why we have Torah. Moshe told it to us. Moshe told it to the angels as well. The reason why we have Torah is because we are not angels. The angels had the Torah, so to speak, in that realm. But that didn't change them. That was their state. We are flawed, but we can become like the angels. We can achieve the angelic state, and therefore we're the ones who are given the Torah to catapult ourselves to become like angels. We're flawed, but we can and we need to be elevated. If we were to harmonize with Torah, we would become like the angels. That's point number one. And point number two, if you look at Moshe himself, Moshe embodies what that looks like. Moshe goes up to heaven and he's there with angels. What would we look like? How would we fare in a conversation, a showdown with angels? It wouldn't look pretty. I assure you that. Moshe is able to go and freely converse with them. He can argue with them. He can debate them. He can triumph over them. Moshe is what it looks like when someone's completely harmonized with Torah. That's the end game where Moshe could go up there and engage with the angels and have almost like parity with them. Now, there's a subtlety here as well. If you look at the conversation in the in the Talmud, when the angels tell God or ask God, what is Moshe doing here? They label him as Yilud Isha. He is a person born to a mother. And then God says, well, he's here to get the Torah. And they freak out. The Torah, the holy Torah, the treasure that's been with you for 974 generations before the world's created, you're going to give it to flesh and blood? Isn't it interesting that the angels have two terms for humans? Moshe, they call Yilud Isha, someone born to a woman. 
the people they call flesh and blood. The idea here is even the angels could sense that Moshe was equivalent to them. They didn't call him flesh and blood. The only differentiating factor between Moshe and the angels was the fact that Moshe's pedigree was that he was born to a woman. That's the only difference. Besides for that, he and the angels were indistinguishable. That is what it looks like. Every human could theoretically become like Moshe, theoretically become like the angels. Most people don't do it. But everyone potentially could because we all have that angel-animal baked within us. That's that fusion. And if you were to completely isolate one side of it, just the angelic side, you too would just be called the Yuludisha, born to a woman because you too would be indistinguishable on a practical level from angels. The pedigree, the history would be Yuludisha, born to a woman. But the angels will not characterize you as flesh and blood. They didn't characterize Moshe as flesh and blood. And of course, that means he, did he actually have flesh and blood? Yes, he was still, his body was still that of a human. But on a spiritual level, he was indistinguishable from the angels because he had completely connected to one side and ignored or subjugated the other half. He was completely an angel. And therefore, they addressed him as such. What's he doing here? This new thing, which is someone who was born to a woman, but now is like an angel. Oh, he's going to take the Torah and give it to other people who are flesh and blood so that they too can become like angels. Let's take a, let's take stock of what we have over here. Torah is much more than just a discipline. It's a relationship like a husband and wife. It's here to help us. We must cleave to it, fuse with it, become one with it, and thereby become like an angel. Once we become like that, we can ask any, we can answer any question almost as an angel would, or as God would, or as Torah would. People who completely integrate with Torah can serve as a proxy for God's will. And here's the kicker. One more thing, as they say. We have this amazing relationship with Torah. And it transforms us. But we get God and a relationship with God and faith along the way. God is inextricably connected to Torah. There's a famous midrash about the Mishkan, the tabernacle. Right after Sinai, Jewish people got Torah. That's after the conversation between Moshe and the angels, right? Moshe gets the Torah down, and almost immediately afterwards, right after the given the Torah in the book of Exodus, is the instruction to build the tabernacle. What is the connection between those two events? Why, right after we get the Torah, are we instructed to build a tabernacle? So the Midrash explains. It gives us a parable of a king who had one daughter, favorite daughter. And she was reaching marriageable age, and another prince from a different part of the land came and married her. 
And after the marriage happened, the new prince, the king's son-in-law, wants to go back to his hometown and take his new wife with him, the king's only daughter. So the king told his new son-in-law, my daughter that I gave you, she's my only one. I cannot depart from her. I cannot leave my daughter. On one hand. But to tell you not to take her, I can't do that either. After all, she's your wife. You're legally wedded to her. She's yours. And therefore, you want to go back to your to where you came from? I can't stop you. So we have a problem. I cannot stop you from going, but I cannot depart from her. So here's what we'll do. You go back home, but you make your, for yourself in your castle, make a little room for me to stay. And therefore, you'll have your wife with you and you'll be home, but I too will come and dwell with you. Says the Midrash, the Almighty gives us Torah. The Almighty loves the Torah like a father loves his lone daughter. But at Sinai, there was a wedding between the Jewish people and Torah. And now we say, okay, we got the Torah. We're taking her back home with us. She's ours. And the man says, wait a minute. She's yours. But she's my only daughter. And I need her. I cannot imagine not being in close proximity to her. So here's what we'll do. You build a Mishkan. You build a home for me. And wherever you go, you bring the Mishkan with you. And that way, you'll have your your wife, you'll have the Torah, but I'll be close to her. The idea here is, yes, we are united with Torah. That's like our spouse, the Almighty's daughter on this analogy. But as a result of that, we also maintain a connection with God. This is God's first creation, and wherever it goes, he goes. And the Talmud tells us that from the day that the temple was destroyed, so there's no longer a hometown place, so to speak, for God, a, a room for God to rest in the temple, where does he reside? In the four cubits of halacha. Meaning, wherever there is a study hall of Torah, that almost takes on the equivalent of the temple. Wherever there is a Torah study hall, that becomes a place where God's presence resides. Why? Again, the Torah is ours, legally wedded, but the Almighty promises, he tells us, he is inextricably connected to Torah. There's no way to separate God out of Torah. And therefore, wherever there is Torah study, we no longer have a centralized place for God to reside amongst us, but we have decentralized locations of Torah study, and wherever we study Torah, the Almighty is with us. And there's a Mishnah on Perkyavos that says that quite explicitly. If there's 10 people sitting and studying Torah, the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, is amongst them. And even if five people study, even if three people study, even if two people study, even if one person studies themselves, the Almighty is with them. When we talk about Torah, it's there to perfect us. It's there to transform us. It's there to change us. It's there to transform us from being an animal or someone at least heading in that direction to become to becoming like an angel. 
it's also there to foster a relationship between us and God. This is really what it's all about. There's a mitzvah to study Torah, but there's also a mitzvah to have a relationship with God. In fact, in the aforementioned verse of the Shema, it says, you should love Hashem, your God, with all your hearts, with all your soul, with all your resources. We have to have a relationship with God to the degree that we love Him. How much love? An insane amount of love. The Ramam, in fact, tells us that we have to love God to the degree that we're almost like sick. We're lovesick with love for him. But here's the problem. Love God? How can we love God? We have a hard time even defining what God is. We have a prohibition against enunciating the name that relate to God's essence. The true knowledge of God is completely beyond us. Only God has true knowledge of God, complete, perfect knowledge of God. And yet we're supposed to develop an emotional bond, a bond of love between us and God? How do we do that? Says the Midrash, You should love Hashem your God with all your hearts. With all your soul. With all your resources. And the next verse, And it should be these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. Explains the Midrash. The way to love God is via the words of God upon our heart. It's via the Torah. The Torah is inextricably linked to God, and therefore, the more we connect to Torah, by extension, the more we're connecting to the Almighty. Says Rashi, again on that verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I don't know how I'm supposed to love God. And therefore, the next verse tells us, these words shall be upon our heart, through the study of Torah, we can connect and cleave to God. And there's a very important idea here. And I know we're talking, we're doing a lot of ideas. And in the previous go round, each one of these would be like its own session to, to really, to really separate out these ideas that are, are intersecting over here. The Rambam, when he talks about the mitzvah of loving God, he explains that this is what humans are created for. We are created to achieve a level of loving God. And the way that is done is like this. This is kind of the formula that the Ramam outlines for us. He says, if you were to truly know God, you would definitely love him. And therefore, the problem with loving God is not one of love, it's one of knowledge. Because anyone who knows God definitely loves him. So how do we know God? So he tells us, the Almighty, he gave us his handiwork. He gave us his mitzvos. He gave us his Torah. He gave us his world, his universe. 
all those things are given to us to be able to connect to him via those things. Meaning, if we try to use a theological way to get to God, we're not going to get it. We're not capable of doing that. We can maybe theologically acknowledge the existence of God, but we cannot develop a relationship with him, certainly not one of love, via theology. But the body says, you know what? You don't have to have theology. Look at my handiwork. This world that I created for you, with its incredible intricacies and how it works, what we would call science, God's handiwork. When you discover something, when you develop an idea and understanding of the awesomeness of the Almighty's handiwork, you will gain insight, knowledge of God and his power and omnipotence. And that will necessarily engender love. Because knowledge of God equals love of him. Similarly with Torah. If you develop an understanding of Torah, you develop an insight in Torah, you discover something hitherto you didn't know about Torah, and you do it at a very deep level, and that's the prerequisite for this. You have to think, you have to ruminate, you have to really toil over an idea. It could be an idea in Torah, in mitzvah, in God's handiwork in the world and what we would call, what we would call nature. You have to work really hard and think and ruminate and ponder until you have an insight. And that insight is a touch point with God. And that will unlock, says the Rambam, the highest level of pleasure that's possible for a human to experience. It's a eureka, a discovery moment, a aha moment, as they say, where you discover an insight and your whole life has changed. And you gain a new appreciation of God by understanding his creations, namely his world, his commandments, and his first creation, i.e. his Torah. The Torah gives us lots of limitations on things we cannot enjoy, on pleasures. But the truth is it gives us a lot more pleasures and a lot more subtle and sophisticated and sublime pleasures, namely the pleasure of loving God. But we cannot go directly towards that because we cannot fathom God himself. But we are given his mind and his handiwork and his instructions, says the Rambam. And those can serve as a proxy, if you will. We connect to that, we understand that, and we develop an understanding of God and that will engender love and this highest level of pleasure. So we have Torah, and Torah is there. It's a relationship to turn us into angels, essentially, if we fuse with it. And comes along with Torah is also a relationship with God to be able to achieve the reason why we are brought here, not just to know God, but to love him through Torah, we can develop a relationship with God. Through Torah, we can preserve our relationship with God. If we have an existing relationship with God, that is preserved and maintained and sustained and nourished via Torah study. God forbid if we were to lose our relationship with him, 
the relationship with God can be restored via Torah as well. The Midrash tells us that it's almost like God said, if only the Jewish people had abandoned me, but cleaved to the Torah. Because the light of Torah, the illumination of Torah, would restore them back to my good races. Torah can help us develop a relationship with God. It can preserve a relationship that we have with God. And it can restore a relationship that has gone south. We can come back to him via his Torah. So in conclusion, Torah is a mitzvah, of course. There's lots of mitzvahs. 613 mitzvahs, many mitzvahs. But this is a mitzvah really unlike any other. This is a mitzvah that embodies the goal of of all of them at large. It's equal to all 613 mitzvahs. It's the first question we get asked. Because this is really what we're here for. We are this really strange organism, this really strange species. We're an angel, we're an animal. That's opposites. Those things should really not unite under one canopy. But here we are. That's what we are. And the objective of life is to be able to filter through that confusion and become an angel. And the way we do that is by cleaving to Torah, uniting with Torah, harmonizing ourselves, becoming one with Torah, fusing with Torah, and now we are really an angel. And just as we're supposed to develop a relationship with Torah, by doing that, we also develop a relationship with the Almighty, which, after all, is the goal of existence. So I think hopefully this this will help us appreciate what it means to study Torah. It's a new understanding, a new perspective. And in our next session of this kind, I want to pivot to discussing the reward, the more um, the benefits, if you will, both in this world and in the upcoming world of Torah study. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing your questions and your comments and your feedback.